0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on today's show, we'll start off with an econ quiz segment. I'll be speaking with Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College, on the topic of pensions. Dave and I discuss different types of pensions and how some factor into state debt. Then on Upstream, host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Phil Terzian, a writer for the Weekly Standard. Bill and Bruce discussed the blind spots in the legacy of Frida Kahlo and our current understanding of Stalin today. If you're interested in any books or articles mentioned in today's episode, you can find them linked in our show notes, posted each Wednesday at blog.acton.org. A few weeks ago, The Washington Post released an article which read Connecticut is drowning in debt. Should the rest of us have to pay? I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and you're listening to Econ Quiz, an occasional segment of our podcast where we examine a current economic issue and talk about how this issue may be understood or misunderstood by the public. My guest today is Dave Hebert, professor of economics at Aquinas College here in Grand Rapids. Dave, thank you for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Today's topic is debt and pensions. Right now, there are a number of states with mounting debt problems, some of the top states being California, Virginia, Maryland, and Connecticut. The article I mentioned earlier from the Washington Post states that in Illinois, vendors wait months to be paid by a state government that is $30 billion in debt and one notch above junk bond status. And in terms of per capita state debt, Connecticut ranks among the worst in the nation, with under unfunded liabilities amounting to just about 23000 per citizen. Um, so there are a number of reasons for the debt, some being Medicaid spending and public pensions just eating up state funds. Would you say that pensions are one of the top reasons for this debt?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Pensions are such a tricky topic to, to talk about because there's so many uh, promises that are made and political ramifications for even trying to adjust them a little bit, even in the case of perfectly innocent, economically necessary adjustments.
0: So before we go any farther, I know that most of our listeners know what a pension is, but can you briefly explain the basics of a pension and why it's creating such a problem and the difference between the two main types of pensions, that being the defined benefit plan and the defined contribution plan?
1: Yeah. So what a pension is, it's a promise to pay some number of dollars in the future. You can have a defined contribution plan, which says that every citizen who qualifies for this thing will be paying in a certain percentage or a certain dollar figure from their paycheck. That money is then invested somehow and the return that you get when you retire is a direct product of that investment. So a defined contribution is basically saying you will contribute this number of dollars per paycheck or per year and you will get whatever that investment returns and we'll oversee it for you. A defined benefit plan says that you will get a certain benefit upon retirement. So normally this is done, uh, for example, in the state of Alabama, the the, uh, RSA has a defined benefit plan, which says that any teacher or anyone who qualifies in the education industry there will receive a certain percentage of their salary as a pension for the rest of their life. Now, the way that's calculated is somewhat technical, but basically it's a certain percentage of your salary for every year that you've worked in the state of Alabama. So in their case, let's say you worked in the school systems there for 20 years, you would get 40% of your salary as a pension every year for the rest of your life. And so that way, rather than define how much money you put into the thing or into the program. We're instead defining how much you will get out, and that's independent of whatever economic conditions are are met throughout the the sort of maturation of that investment.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the main kind of pension here that we're talking about that's creating such a problem, right. correct?
1: Yes, that's a big, it's a very big problem because what it is, is it's a very easily gamed system. So I can't speak for any particular examples here, but I do know of some examples where People will defer their raises over the course of several years in order to get their last year's salary as high as possible, because that's the salary that's used to determine what your percentage will be for your salary for your pension later. So let's say you know you're making a hundred grand a year, you retire, and you're supposed to get 40% of your salary for the rest of your life. Okay, that means you get 40 grand a year guaranteed by whatever government is is guaranteeing that pension. But what if instead of taking raises during your last 3 or 4 or 10 years, you defer all those raises. So you make the same number of dollars over those 10 year period or that 10 year period. But now you're making a lot of money in the last year, and that's the number that we use to determine what your pension will be. Well, now all of a sudden your pension is much much higher than it probably quote unquote should have been.
0: Mm-hmm. So why is this so hard to reform politically? It seems that, you know, from our perspective, we'll just put a halt on the spending. Um, So it seems like both Democrats and Republicans, that they're not really making headway in this issue. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the challenge is that a lot of people who sort of worked their whole lives have been promised this number of dollars or this benefit upon their retirement. They've planned to have those dollars. As a result, they may have saved less than they would have without those dollars being promised to them. And if you take it away or you reform it in some way, well, that's tantamount to stripping them of their retirement. And it can cause serious hardship. I don't want to deny that for any, you know, second at all. That's a very big thing. Think about when General Motors decided to reform their pensions. Thousands of people in Michigan suffered real hardship. So it's a very difficult issue to to confront, but a, a, in a lot of cases, the economic realities are such that the return on the investment that have been made over the last 20, 30 years is insufficient to meet the obligations that the pension program promises.
0: Yeah. So how is this insufficiency being made up for? Like, who's paying for it currently? And where do you see us headed?
1: Yeah, ultimately, it comes down to taxpayers, different taxpayers who didn't necessarily pay into the program, or even current payees, their money may be reappropriated towards current receivers of pension programs. So let's just be clear. It's not like when you save for, for example, Social Security, there's not an account in Washington, D.C. that says, you know, Caroline Roberts or Dave Hebert, right? That thing doesn't exist. Instead, there's just a big pile of money. All of our money goes into it. It accrues some interest, at least conceivably. And then we pay out to the current pen or current Social Security recipients from that fund. The same is true of state pensions and any other pensions that we use. There's not an account in our name that locks those dollars into a box that is ours, Instead, it's just a big pile of money that we spend out of.
0: All right, Dave. So here at the Acton Institute, we do like to kind of combine this idea of good intentions with sound economics. And as a result of that, we like to kind of connect the head and the heart. So examine the morality or immorality behind some economic ideas regarding pensions. I mean, for the most part, there's nothing immoral or moral in and of itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's nothing, like you said, immoral or moral about pension plans themselves. You know, if I put money into an account every month or whatever, and I'm following, say, the Dave Ramsey plan and putting a couple hundred bucks a month into a savings account or a CD or something, you know, that's the same thing from an economic perspective, at least, as a defined contribution plan. So there's nothing immoral there where some potential for immoral behavior might come in is you know, what if the pension plan doesn't have enough money in it to pay out its current, uh, you know, receivers of the pension? Then, you know, you have to do something because these people were promised some number of dollars years ago. You have failed to provide an adequate amount of dollars. And somehow those dollars have to be either made up or you have to go through bankruptcy, which typically you can't do with a pension plan. So the solution that a lot of pensioners will enact, essentially, is to vote to raise the contribution rates of the current payees of the pension, so the current workers paying into the pension plan, and use those dollars to pay the current receivers of the pension. And that, to me, seems a little immoral. You know, you have mishandled your funds. You have done a poor job of of stewarding money properly. And so to make up for your shortcomings, you're going to take more money from the current generation and give it to, The currently retired people, not that I don't want to give money to retired people. That's not the goal here. But the goal is to say that the money that I give into the pension program, that money grows into something that I then get. Right. That's where I think the immorality might come in.
0: And those kinds of plans, those would be regulated at the state level, correct?
1: Some of them are. Some of them aren't. Uh, I know like different companies might have a pension plan that maybe the union makes them uh, pay for or, or finance. But a lot of times we are talking about state pensions or maybe the national pension, like the Social Security Program or something like that.
0: So they say that overall, the unfunded liability associated with these programs is as high as $574 billion. As a result of this, I know that even this article in The Washington Post hinted at this, that there's a possibility that some states would seek nationalization of these debts. Um, do you think that that would be a possibility?
1: So unfortunately, I do think that that's entirely possible in today's world where we're basically ignoring the Constitution. Think back to you know, what the 10th Amendment says. The 10th Amendment says that any powers not explicitly granted in the Constitution to the federal government are reserved to the states. We have completely ignored that for decades. Look at, uh, not again, not trying to say that people weren't suffering, but look at Hurricane Katrina. We used millions, if not billions of dollars of federal money to support and help these people get their lives started back up. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that these people weren't suffering, but the question becomes, is that a proper use of federal funds? And to me, the answer is no. And to cite this or to sort of drive this home, we can turn to a man that we all know and love, or at least are aware of, uh, Davy Crockett. So Davy Crockett was a U.S. uh, representative from the great state of Tennessee, Uh, way, way back in the day, and he sees this fire in Georgetown, which is just across the river from Washington, D.C. He and a bunch of his fellow congressmen rush over there to help put out the fire because at this time, people can or could and did help other people do these things. The next day, Congress is back in session. They table all other concerns that they had, and they pass an emergency $20,000 spending bill. Now, that doesn't sound like much to us today, but at the time, it amounted to millions and millions of dollars okay, in today's currency. And so they do this, city of Georgetown gets back on its feet, all seems well and good. Later on, uh, on the campaign trail, Davy Crockett is, you know, dri- or not driving, but riding through Tennessee, talking to constituents, and he comes across a farmer. And the farmer chastised him for voting yes on this spending bill. And his answer was that these dollars, these federal taxpayer dollars, are not yours to give. They are not Congresses to give out for charity. They're not Congresses to give out for economic hardship. They're there to provide for the common good. And that's it. All other things, all other goals that we wish to use these, these dollars for have to be done through the states, right? And that's the purpose here. The federal government is not established as an insurance agent for all the states or for any citizens. Unfortunately, today we see far too many instances of, you know, too big to fail, bailing out big banks, bailing out large companies. You know, we in Michigan benefited from this. There's no denying it. But the question is, is that the proper role of government? And it seems to me that the answer is no. But unfortunately, people in Washington, DC seem to think that the answer is yes. Right.
0: So in hopes that the Con- like constitutionally, it won't be violated in the sense that the debt wouldn't be spread to taxpayers nationally. What is the best case scenario of the way that this
1: situation will be worked out? Well, I mean, the best case scenario is one where Connecticut and any other state—in fact, I think all fifty states—are currently running a deficit or at least in debt for this upcoming year. The current, the hope is that they'll all solve their own problems. The challenge is that we've already opened the Pandora's box of bailing out using federal dollars, entities that we view are too big to fail. The challenge is that once we open a new Pandora's box saying that the federal government can bail out state governments, well, now we run into a problem where any shred of fiscal discipline that's left at the state level is gone. If, a con- if any state knows that they'll be bailed out for coming into economic hardships by the federal government, what reason do they have to stay fiscally, cons- fiscally in line?
0: All right. Well, Dave, thank you for coming in and talking with me about this, and I look forward to the next time you come in for another econ quiz.
1: Great. Thanks so much.
0: Join us on September 20 at the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to hear Hank Meyer, Executive Chairman of Meyer in Grand Rapids, speak on how Senator Arthur Vandenberg forged a consensus that helped make the American century. You can register for this event at acton.org events.
2: Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and we are discussing today an essay written by the Weekly Standards senior writer, Phil Terzian, Philip Terzian, The One Historical Sin That's Always Forgotten. And in it, he talks about a new Frida Kahlo exhibition at London's Victoria and Albert Museum, gauging by the tone of your essay, Phil. I'm thinking you're probably not buying a ticket and an airplane ride to London to see this.
3: Well, I'm not buying a ticket to see it, although if I were in London, I might be tempted to go see it, uh part largely because I sort of I rather like the museum it's in, the Victoria and Albert Museum. But I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to be uh, going into great trouble uh to see it. I just thought it was interesting because um Frida Kahlo, as you know, was a Mexican artist and, if I may say, personality who uh, had a comparatively short and tragic life. She was a she was a product of the Mexican upper middle class and and um, uh, became a kind of bohemian artist. was the lover of Diego Rivera, the famous communist um, painter and muralist, and she herself was a, a communist and she uh, uh lived they lived in new york they lived in california they lived in various places um but she was very much enamored of the what you might call the aesthetic of of indigenous mexicans um the clothes they wore uh, the, the the she incorporated to some degree their aesthetic into her art which is very um uh, characteristic and unique looking and and she herself as artists sometimes do uh was a kind of self dramatizing person. Um she was famously wore uh, eccentrically colorful clothes. She had a unibrow which she made no effort to disguise. <laughs> she sort of she sort of made herself into a, a dramatic creature and was much admired in, in avant garde circles in in her day and then died um uh uh, in the mid-1950s in her mid-40s and was, I wouldn't say forgotten, but neglected for many years until comparatively recently when she's become a kind of, if I may say, feminist uh, heroine. Um, what intrigues me about her is that it isn't, although Frida Kahlo's art has its admirers, I don't happen to be among them, but I certainly understand why people like her her painting but it while it has while it has its admirers what intrigues me to some degree about frida kahlo is that what people like about her more is her lifestyle it's her life that's a, a little like f scott fitzgerald the the drama of her life is almost as as famous as the work she produced and tellingly this the show which is at the victoria and albert museum in new york and which the new york times and Vogue and other publications have written about glowingly isn't really an exhibition of her art at all it's an exhibition of her personal possessions her her clothes literally her makeup her lipstick vials and things like that it's sort of the the objects that made up the uh the legend of Frida Kahlo There's, there there are there are a couple of paintings but it's really more about her uh, her her personal possessions, which I think tells us a little something about our celebrity culture.
2: You say that she uh, was very much a Marxist, and she was very much uh, involved with Diego Rivera, who was her husband, and I'm not sure whether that was an actual legal marriage or a common law marriage, but uh, he was very much into socialism, and a lot of— I look at Frida Kahlo's paintings, and I see a lot of influence of socialist realism.
3: Oh no, absolutely! I mean, she's she's very much, a, if I may say, she's very much a product of the nineteen twenties and thirties, which is when she came of age as an artist. And her her painting is is to some degree it's social, social uh, socialist realism with with a kind of Mexican flavor. The the the. the Colors are very characteristically Mesoamerican. They don't look like uh, Thomas Hart Benton or other Americans of that school. They're very Mexican-looking, and she incorporates a lot of, um, if I may say, peasant Mexican imagery and and iconography and and that sort of thing. Well, she was Um, also
2: a very big collector. She and Diego Rivera were were great collectors of pre-Columbian art as well. Right.
3: Exactly. And by the way, I mean, I wouldn't – it's true that Diego Rivera was a Marxist, but they were also – they literally were communists. I mean, they were both members of the Communist Party of Mexico. And Frida in particular was a a very devoted member of the party, so devoted, in fact, that when Trotsky was assassinated in Mexico City in 1940 – uh, the Mexi- I mean, it was fairly clear who killed him, but um, she fell under some suspicion because she was a friend of his of his assassin, who of course was an agent of Stalin's, who literally was sent to Mexico with the with the assignment to assassinate Leon Trotsky. What's interesting to me about Frida Kahlo and and was the point of the piece aside from her her art and her personal aesthetic is that her communism was very much a part of her life i mean she did innumerable um uh, if i may say reverent paintings of stalin there's a wonderful uh, painting of hers which was they kindly reproduced in the piece i did it's a self portrait she did in 1954 the year of her death and the year after the death of stalin and she's sitting uh, demurely in the foreground it's just this enormous Uh, oversized head of of Marshal Stalin right behind her. And there's there's real affection, not to say reverence, in her depiction of Stalin. And what intrigues me about all this is that um, Stalin is probably the preeminent tyrant and mass murderer of the 20th century. I mean, you can argue that Mao Zedong killed more people. Stalin just killed... Tens of millions of people indiscriminately. Um, Nothing protected you in Stalin's Soviet Union. I say in the piece that if if Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo had lived in Moscow, as some of their some of their uh, friends and uh, cohort did over time, they probably would have been killed themselves because nothing protected you from. From Stalin, not not being his family, his close comrade, his devoted admirer, he just he killed people in the millions, and and of course starved millions of people in Ukraine, and and so on, and all of this is is just kind of glossed over and excused with a kind of bemused shrug. There was a long piece in the New York Times about the Frida Kahlo ex- exhibition where they. Incidentally, mentioned that she was a devoted communist, and and so on, and and um, this may have had something to do with her choice of colors and this or that painting, and so on. And I just always det- it's a kind of bet noir of mine, but I always detect a a, a a serious double standard here. I mean, if if Frida Kahlo had been the Mistress of Robert E. Lee, rather than Diego (laughs) Rivera, we we would know all about it. Or, and God knows if she'd been a a neo-Nazi, and there were plenty of them in Mexico, that would be the thing. That was what we would mostly know about her, and that was what they would mostly talk about. And there certainly wouldn't be an admiring show about her at the Victoria and Albert in New York, and long uh, admiring articles in the New York Times. Um, there's a curious double standard here that I, I find um, mystifying.
2: Well, yeah, if I may take the liberty, I'll, I'll read a paragraph from your weekly Standard essay where you say, whatever one may think of Frida Kahlo's art and habits, it's hard to avoid the fact that her long and diligent political allegiance was sworn to the service of one of history's most frightening tyrants and mass murderers. The irony, of course, is that if she and Rivera had lived and worked not in Mexico or California or New York, as they did, but in the Soviet Union of their dreams, they would both likely have been arrested, tortured, and killed, as some 20 million subjects of Stalin were dispatched at their hero's whim.
3: Well, that's true. And of course, Frida Kahlo isn't alone in this. I mean, there are a lot of cultural heroes of our time, Um, Lillian Hellman, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Pablo Neruda, Pete Seeger, Paul Robeson, all of whom were were vocal, insistent public apologists for the Stalin regime. And um, there were far more of them than there were uh, apologists for some of the other um, mass murdering regimes of the 20th century. Um, I'm thinking of Germany in particular, but as I say, that's that's a kind of biographical footnote for all of these people, or it's a kind of lovable eccentric quirk. I mean, oh, that Frida, she was a she was a, a, a quite a character, and among the um, interesting things about her was she just loved Stalin. But getting back to her uh, fashion sense. And I don't think that would all be uh, so quickly dismissed if she'd been a a, a Nazi <laughs> or, or an Italian or, fascist. Or, yeah, or yes. a follower of General Franco or Mussolini or some other uh, regime of that nature. Uh, there's this curious blindness in in American culture about uh, the crimes of the Soviet Union and the people in our country and in our hemisphere and in Western Europe who were its enablers. Um, I don't know. I mean there may come a day, I hope there is someday when we'll have a little more perspective about all this and 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 apologists for Stalin will be held in the same regard as apologists for other tyrants are but I think part of the problem too is that as I say Hitler was a racist and he killed people on the basis of race whereas Stalin just killed people indiscriminately uh, indiscriminately just just for being themselves and also uh, the killings in the Soviet Union were were uh, you know the Soviet Union won the second world so so we, it was largely a secret for, to some degree, uh, not that there weren't apologists at the time of the Moscow trials and the, the mass starvation in the Ukraine and so on. Uh, th- th- there was knowledge of those things, but it wasn't very well known. And of course, there were no journalists uh, traveling around to report about it. So to some degree, it's not as well known, but it it certainly deserves to be well known. And I think that it's, it probably tells us more about people like Frida Kahlo than just her her um, delightfully eccentric personality or her quirky art. Well, yes, and Frida Kahlo
2: uh, not only did a self-portrait with Stalin in the year of her death, 1954, she also did a painting called Marxism Will Give Health to the Sick, and I, I think uh, Michael Moore actually borrowed from that to do an entire documentary called Sicko. But yes. let's let's go back to the title of your essay, and maybe you can explain to me why is support for Stalin and communism the one historical sin that's always forgiven? Why is that?
3: Well, I, uh, first of all, I should point out, as you well, no um titles are not written by authors and um i I actually didn't write the title for my piece but 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 it 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 sums up the the point as well is the point is is certainly correct well, I think there are a lot of reasons i as I say I think that um for one thing um, uh, th- there was a great deal of sympathy for the Soviet Union and the United States and the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and, and 50s, they were our allies in the Second World War. Um, the 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 other side in Europe was so odious and so ugly uh, uh, and so nightmarish, um, and so and so well documented that we're much more familiar with the horrors of of Nazi Germany than we are with the Soviet Union, even though. In terms of the body count, the soviet Union was a, a far worse place to be and and two, I think that i mean one of my I've always argued i mentioned the McCarthy era um one of the one of the unfortunate things about Senator McCarthy in that whole era is that because he was so reckless and indiscriminate and not very well documented and so on um it it made anti communism to some degree intellectual intellectually unrespectable in america right thinking people just thought that was all um a bit much and i would argue that that over the years uh, i mean people have forgotten that that criticism of of communism anti communist um ideology um uh uh critical uh, views of the soviet union were n- not very fashionable um they were anti communism was kind of a joke i mean even today um you know if you if you're a, you know if you're a listener of late night monologues or watcher of hbo movies there always there will always be sarcastic references to Um, uh, You know, get those commie pinkos out of here or, you know, looking for communists under the bed, ha, 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 (laughs) as if they were all uh, phantoms. And, of course, they weren't. And, of course, while McCarthy was reckless and ill-informed, he wasn't entirely (laughs) incorrect to, to conclude that there were people in the United States who were agents of the Soviet Union I mean, we now know since the collapse of the Soviet Union that that Alger Hiss really was a Soviet agent, that the Rosenbergs really had uh, uh, collaborated with the Soviet Union to betray our atomic secrets and so on. And what had been um, dismissed out of hand and culturally unfashionable was affirmed by history. But unfortunately, a generation or so too late. I mean, by the time the Venona... Uh, intercepts uh, the the Venona papers and whatnot, which kind of revealed the, um, what is known uh, in the Soviet Union about espionage in, in the West and in particularly in the United States. Uh, as I say, anti-communism had become very much the province of sort of um, unsophisticated right-wingers who sophisticated and educated people just didn't take seriously. Um, and I think that's a that's a problem. And a, a reckoning with the sins of, of the extreme left um, just hasn't taken place. I mean, we're <laughs> at this very moment, we're already seeing large portions of the Democratic Party is now proudly and smilingly embracing uh, socialism uh, on the same basis that they always have, that it's never really been tried and done properly, and this time we'll do it right. Well, it's been tried a lot of times, and it's always resulted in the same, uh, it's always had the same consequence for human beings. Absolutely. I'm speaking with Phil
2: Terzian from the Weekly Standard. His new essay is The One Historical Sin That's Always Forgiven. I highly recommend it. It gives a good background on the career and politics of Frida Kahlo and is Again, just another wonderful essay by, by Philip Jersey at The Weekly Standard. Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. All right. Look forward to talking to you again soon.
0: And that concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening today. As always, tell your friends about Radio Free Acton and let them know that they can listen on their favorite podcast app along with Spotify and YouTube. If you want to reach the podcast team here at Acton, you can leave us a message at 888 888- 705 4180 or email us at rfaacton.org. At Lastly, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.